I want to title this message, Remembering Paradise. Remembering Paradise. And you'll see what I mean by that shortly. Here's a couple passages I want to read from. They're both from the book of John. The first is from John chapter 1, right towards the beginning where the Lord says, All things came into being through Him. It's referring to Jesus in His uh, pre-incarnate state. And without Him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life. And the life was the light of all people. Jesus is life. And that life is light. It is what is, to the extent that anybody on the planet has got light, has got life, it comes from Jesus Christ. The light shines in the darkness. Apparently this world is enveloped in darkness. But the darkness did not. It could not overcome it. Praise God. And then in chapter 10, now the Lord is speaking as the incarnate Lord. That is to say, He's God manifested in the flesh. And he's teaching his disciples here. And this is a verse we read last week. We're going to be chewing on for some time here. He says, the thief, apparently there's a thief, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. There's an enemy of our souls who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. But I came, Jesus said, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I came, why? To give us a thicker, steeper, longer Code book of rules and regulations? No. He says, I've come for this reason, that you might have life. Not just organic life, not just biological life, not just survival life, but life. That you might have it more abundantly. The word there can mean to the full, to the max, to the extreme, as much life as you can get. That's the kind of life God wants you to have. So we, we started last week on this series uh, about discipleship. As a sort of pre-series to that series, I'm doing a, a, a little series here on, on passion. Because, see, the problem is this. We saw it last week, that in, in, for Christians in general, but especially Western Christians, especially American Christians, discipleship isn't a good word. It's a bad word. Sanctification isn't a good word. It's a bad word. Holiness isn't a good word. It tends to be a bad word. It lands on people like an ought, like a should, like a, like a better do sort of thing. And the result of that is that it doesn't rank very high on anyone's priority list. And we saw some statistics last week that are very disturbing in terms of how much energy and thought and effort Christians put into growing in their walk with God. It's very, very little. Other things are way higher on the priority list. Why is that? And one could simply say, well, Americans are lazy, sinful, and carnal, and there's certainly some truth to that. But I don't think that is the core explanation for why real, genuine Christians don't aspire to make walking with God a high priority, the highest priority in our life. The more fundamental problem, I believe, is this. There's something that just isn't hitting on all cylinders when it comes to our inner life. There's, there's a fire, there's a passion, there's an energy that is missing. And the reason why I think the energy and the passion is missing is because there's a perspective that is missing. To a large degree... The Christianity of the modern age in the West has been reduced to some techniques and some tips to help you live a little bit better life. And it's been gutted. Christianity has been gutted. It's lost some of the soul. And what I want to do is see, if you don't, if you don't find that soul, if you don't see the overall storyline, you don't see a context in which it makes sense to really invest your all in walking with God. You don't have the passion, so you don't have the fuel, you don't have the energy, you don't have the motivation to do it. So how do we get that passion back? Jesus came 
Not to give us some tips and techniques. I'm not against tips and techniques. Those are fine. But that's not the heart. It's not the soul. It's not the center of what the faith is about. Jesus came. The ultimate goal is for people to be fully alive. Being as God created them to be. Being as Jesus saved them to be. Living, full, passionate, free, vibrant. Now, what do we mean by life? You see, we're so far removed from it that for some of us this is just sort of an ethereal abstraction. John Eldridge, in his, he has two great books. Uh, uh, in fact, I, I heard he has three. I haven't read the third one. But the first is uh, The Sacred Romance, John Eldridge's Sacred Romance, and uh, uh, Brent Curtis. He wrote it with Brent Curtis. The second one is Journey of Desire. And the third one is Wild Heart, The Wild Heart, Wild at Hearts, Born to be Wild, I don't know, something like that. Oh, that was last week. Um, but uh, the, 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 what he says there is this, that... For many people, anyways, maybe for a majority of people in the West, the place where we most lock into what life is about is at the movies. And I really relate to this, because if I was on a preacher, I think I'd be a movie critic, because I love going to movies. I, I just, we enjoy it. It's one of our favorite little you know, pastimes to do. At the movies, he says, we discover something true about ourselves. Uh, we, we go to the movies, he says, because we, we vicariously live. Uh, we tap into something fundamental there. Now, now a, a picture's worth a thousand words, so I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to show here a scene from a movie that at least 90% of you have seen and 75% of you cried at. Uh, in this, I'll set up the scene this way. Uh, there's a young lady on a boat, a big boat. The boat didn't make it to shore either. Oh, no, here we go. And... Uh, her name is Rose, and see, she, this boat is a prison to her because she's locked in. She's in this high society snobbery, and she's being killed by the rules and the regulations and the propriety and the disingenuousness, and she's engaged to a man that she doesn't love. It's just a, a marriage of convenience for money and all sorts of stuff like that. There's this other guy. His name is Jack, and he comes along, and he's sort of a, this free, free guy, freelance guy. He just doesn't lock into anything, and he represents sort of freedom and life and energy and adventure. And he tries to kind of coax Rose out of this snobbery, stuffy box that she's in. And at first she resists. But then comes the turning point in the movie. And uh, things turn around from this point on. So check it out, the Titanic.
Well, in the real world, people kiss. And, and it was to part of the point of the story. I mean, they're falling in love here, all right? And so I kind of need to... But isn't there something? Like, you know, <laughs> focus, focus. <laughs> You're all in there. We want more of the movie. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't introduce competition like that. What is it about this show that it, it gripped, gripped so many people? I mean, over two billion people saw this movie. Um, some, some of us, several times. What is it? It wasn't the acting, no. It was not... Uh, I trust you. I, it, uh, they said Jack and Rose too many times in this show. It starts to get irritating. But there, see, there's something about this. We all want to fly, don't we? We all want to trust somebody to just hold on to us as we're flying. We all want to get out of the box of our sinking Titanic. We all want to fall in love. We want to have this kind of intimacy. We want to have this kind of adventure. And most of us in our life, we don't have a whole lot of that. And going to the movies is sort of this, as, as John Eldridge says, this vicarious living. It's like, uh, in one sense, we're, we're going there to get away from reality, but in another sense, we're going there to find reality. It touches a core deep inside of us that says that's the way it ought to be. And all great movies do this. You know, we want to believe that the heart does go on. We want to believe that there's a love like that, that life can be like that. And there's something in us that longs for that sort of thing. All the great movies do this sort of thing. Braveheart. You know, every man's got to die, but not every man lives. You know... Uh, well, it's true. We want to be a hero. And, and, and you know, in all these, uh, you know, love conquers death in the end. Somewhere in time. And I know some of you macho guys are out there saying, oh, those are all chick flicks. Well, I like chick flicks, so lay off. You know, time I saw it. A lot of it has been squelched and a lot of it has been wounded, and I'll be talking about that more. Something that comes out in a lot of ways. A lot of ways. Are throwing. We can have these ideals that make us cry, and they're so capable of... You know, we, we can create music that can just bring you to the throne of God and make you cry, but we can also create this trash that inspires teens towards suicide. We're capable of such altruism, but usually we're pretty self-centered. We can, our race can produce a Mother Teresa, but it also produces an Adolf Hitler. We can love so profoundly, but most of the time we're pretty apathetic, and sometimes we're absolutely hateful. We're a contradiction. One of my favorite authors and thinkers of all time is Blaise Pascal, this math, math, genius mathematician in the 16th century who was a Christian. And he says this about humanity. He says, humanity is a contradiction, the glory and the excrement of the universe. Glorious excrement. That's, that's a description. An incomprehensible monster. What, in his writings, he never got around to writing the book. He died when he was 39, but they collected all the fragments of the things he wrote and, and, wrote and put in this collection called Pensées, which is uh, uh, just, you know, all of his kind of reflections on stuff. And they, 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 they all involve him exploring this contradiction that is humanity. The Bible expresses it even more profoundly, however. It says this. Humans are, on the one hand, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The word fearful, when you read that in the Bible, doesn't mean that we're scary. You know? What it means is that we're awe-inspiring. Fearful is awe-inspiring. You look at the eyes and the ears and the mind and what we're capable of, and it is awesome. It is awesome, and it, it's wonderful. We're in the image of God. How could it be otherwise? The Bible also says this, God made them for a little while lower than the angels. Just a little bit lower for a little while in time. We're going to have a status that's actually above them, it, it seems to imply. But that's a glorious, noble calling. 
He has crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. What an incredible thing humanity is, is the creation of God. We've got this honor. We've been given this honor by God. We've been given this glory for, by God. We have a destiny that's above the angels. What a noble thing. All things are under our feet. We're created for nobility. We're created for paradise. We're created to rule. What an awesome, wonderful thing humanity is. We all want to go hip, hip, hooray. But the Bible also says this about us. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. I like the glory and honor part a little better. <laughs> what is it worthless? You just said that we were higher than the angels, man. Worthless. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Humanity is a contradiction. Glorious excrement. Just a little for a little while under the angels. Worthless. Glory and honor, vipers. What a contradiction we are. A foot in one world and a foot in another. Now, here's a really good question. And if you're here this morning and you're a thinker and you're not a Christian, I want you to tune in right now. Quit thinking about the Titanic scene. Tune in. How do you explain this? How do you explain this incredible contradiction that is us? How do you explain there being creatures who have these longings that are not met? We long for meaning, but... If the secular humanist is right, if there is no God who created us for meaning, then everything is meaningless. How does a meaningless universe create uh, meaning creatures who long for something it can't give? How does a purposeless universe long for creatures who can give a purpose? How does a loveless universe create, evolve by time and chance out of the primordial soup? How does it create beings who long for love and think that good should conquer evil? If the secular humanist is right, we're just all a bunch of complex protoplasm, atoms in motion, time and chance, went from the amoeba to us, and that's all there is to be said about it. But how could nature, by itself, time and chance, produce such freaks? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity puts it this way. He says, you know, you look around and, and, and everything in the natural world tells you that nature produces beings who long for things that nature can supply. Every animal hungers and there's food. Every animal thirsts and there's water. Every animal breathes and there's air. But here we are, if we're, just, if we're just natural creatures evolved by natural means into this world, how is it that we have longings that nature can't give? We really believe that good should conquer evil, but if the secular humanist is right, good doesn't conquer evil, not in the end. Evil has the last say. In the end, it will all end up, you end up worm food six feet below the ground. The, the earth will be sucked up into the sun. And in the end, the sun will burn out. And in the end, every star will burn out. The universe will end up in a cold, black nothingness of an abyss. There you go. Hallelujah. Every dream, every hope, every aspiration you have comes to absolutely nothing. Everything we think we create comes to nothing. Everything we hope for comes to nothing. Life is absurd, it's miserable, and it's frustrating, and there's no explanation for it. How do you explain that? There is no explanation. The Bible has a different, and I submit to you, a far more plausible explanation. It says that the reason why we hunger for things that, that this world, as it presently is, can't give is because we're created for a, a world that's different than this, pre, than this present world. The Bible says, suggests this. We were created for paradise. Not this world. Not this war zone. Not, this, not with the sadness, the suffering, the frustration, the unfulfillment, the boredom that goes on here. We're created for, for a, uh, a different, higher uh, calling. And the evidence of that is that we long for it all the time. We can't get away from it. We always remember it. 
We're created to be kings, not slaves. We're created to, to have worth. We're created to have infinite significance by an infinite God who loves us infinitely. And then to reflect that, to reflect, re- refract that to, uh, to our fellow brothers and sisters. That's what we're created for. We're created for adventure. We're created for dance. We're created for passion. We're created for absolute unsurpassable intimacy, to be known fully and to be loved fully. That's what we're created for. But according to the Bible, we rebelled. It, 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 there's free will based in the whole thing, and, and so we rebelled. In a primordial past, we walked away from God. We were cast out of paradise, cast out of the garden. And now we are really strangers in a far country. We are, in a real sense, aliens. This is supposed to be wor- the world that we're, we're to rule over under God's authority, and yet we're aliens on it. We're under siege to a hostile force that was never meant to be controlling us. We are, we are really strangers in a far country. The reason why we're not happy with the way things are is because we weren't created to live in the environment as the, the way things are now. And our misery, our sadness, our longings are a sign of our greatness. Blaise Pascal again put it this way. He says, our miseries prove man's greatness. They are the miseries of a great lord, of a deposed king. For who is unhappy at not being a king except a deposed king. You don't have peasants usually in normal villages throughout history walking around regretting the fact that they're not king. It would never occur to them to be king. The only one who's miserable about not being a king is the one who was supposed to be a king, and now he's been deposed. And for him, being a peasant is something that's just intolerable because he knows that he was nobility. So it is. You know, my, my, my dog does not mind having the most boring existence imaginable. It's, the dog sits around all day, looks out the window. Rabbits do the same thing. We've got four rabbits. How many of you have four rabbits? We do. And I uh, want to buy some. We're going to have a little litter coming up here or whatever they call it pretty soon. So, you know, get in line. I'm sure you're all just dying to have some rabbits. These rabbits that sit around there, all they do is they eat, and, and that's, well, that's it. They're in a cage. And they're just so excited if once every couple of days we take them out and pet them and, and whatever. But they're, so far as I can tell, content. I've asked them. They don't complain. Uh, my dog, the same way, this organic furniture, basically. And they're happy with that. I mean, that's kind of what, uh, so far as I know, they're happy with it. But if I was in a cage like that or if I just had to sit around the house like my dog all the time, if the highlight of my day was having a bowel movement like it is for my dog, I'd be a miserable person. Not that I'm not thankful for being regular, mind you, but I'm just saying it's just... Hopefully it's not the highlight of my day. Uh, you know, because, see, we're created for a different thing. And the fact that we're unsatisfied with the world as it presently is, it says something about us. The longings say something. We're cast out of paradise. We're alienated from the tree of life. The life we have now is not the full life that God wanted us to have. But we remember paradise in various ways. It haunts us. That's why we go to movies. We don't have it, but we, we can at least vicariously for a moment enter into this, this, this unreality, which in some ways is more real than this reality, and we vicariously experience it. We remember paradise. We long for paradise. One of the things that I think is fascinating, I love to study uh, world literature and the mythology of different peoples. I th- find it fascinating. And one of the things you find is that there's common themes throughout all world mythology and legends and stories they tell, common themes that are there. Did you ever see the movie, since we're on a movie theme here, Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Another, you know, it's a, okay, you didn't get that one, but it's a good movie. 
Now, in this movie, there's these people that encounter these aliens. They just have a, have a chance encounter with certain aliens. And what happens as a result of that is they have a homing mechanism put in, in them or a longing inside of them. You, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you have seen the movie, 1980 or so. And what they have to do, they, they have an insatiable need to express this thing that the aliens put inside of them. It, it's just kind of this uh, plateau. Uh, and, and they draw it, they paint it, they carve it, they sculpture it. And, and all these people around the world are making this thing. And they don't know what it's about, but they've got to express it. They don't know what the meaning of it is, but they've got to express it. And some of them are able to somehow locate uh, where this, this, the real plateau is. It's someplace in Nevada or I forget. But that's where the aliens want to have this close encounter and communicate with humankind. So these people from all over the world are, they're homing in on this plateau. It's in their heart. It's in their mind. It's like an archetype, a Jungian archetype in their, in their brain. They just got to express it. And it points to a reality. Now, see, some people, like Robert Price, a guy that I've debated several times on some college campuses, he argues that the fact that there's these common themes in world literature really just suggests that, that uh, Jesus is, is just one more of the myths. And it's true that in this world literature you find this theme of, of uh, there's this, this, this expression of this longing to, to somehow get back home. There's a longing to get saved. There's a longing for love to overcome death. There's a longing for God to rescue us. In some places there's even a, a, an expression of a God who would come down and somehow take upon death upon himself and then rise again from the dead. And a person like Robert Price says, oh, see, Christianity is just one more mythology. But you see... <laughs> There's a number of differences here. One is that we've got a lot of evidence, a lot of historical evidence pointing to the reality uh, that Jesus Christ is for real. He's no myth. But see, the, the more profound point is this, that the legends that anticipate Christianity don't suggest that Christianity isn't true. It suggests that it is true. Because this is why when, when a person hears the gospel story, even if they haven't looked at the, the compelling historical evidence for believing that it actually happened, they, there's something in the core of their being that says, yes, it fits. That's what I've been looking for. That's what I've been longing for. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in, in a book he wrote in, in the collection of essays called God on the Dock. He says that, that in the incarnation, myth becomes reality. Myth becomes reality. The vacuum in the human heart that gets expressed throughout all this mythology, throughout all these stories, beautiful romances that are told, it finds its real orientation, it's, it, the, 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 the homing device is pointing in this direction in the person of Jesus Christ. And what it means in a nutshell is this, to cut out all the academic language, it means this, that, that Jesus Christ is your dream come true. Jesus Christ is the dream of humanity come true. It tells us this, that the, the longings, the aspirations, the hopes, the desire for passion, excitement, adventure, the, the, the anticipation that the world should look a certain way and that we should live a certain way. In the person of Jesus Christ, all that becomes flesh. And it tells us that Christianity was not meant to be simply a bunch of techniques and, and tips on how to live in your otherwise fallen, boring existence. No. Christianity is meant to be this love story. It is the love story of all love stories. It's meant to be an, an adventure. It's the story of a, of a lover whose love is, uh, runs every love you've ever imagined. And this lover, God, longs for this bride. He wants to have his people as a bride. But the bride doesn't even want him. The bride is chasing after a different lover. And this, the, the, the lover who is God is willing to do anything, pay any price, go anywhere, do anything to get this bride back. What a love story. It's the story of a king who is willing to leave the kingdom, to forsake all 
in pursuing this, 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 this peasant lover that he has. It's a story of a God who is willing to take upon himself all the, the judgment that we deserve in order to redeem us uh, to himself. Christianity at its heart is about passion. It's about life. Because Jesus is passion and Jesus is life. And the reason he came here was to give us life and to have it more abundantly. He is. He's the truth that all the fiction points to. He's the truth that all mythology points to. He's the truth that all legend points to. He's the poem that is the goal of all poems. He's the beauty that is the goal of all artistic expressions. He's the beauty of every song that's ever been sung. He's the beauty of the symphony that's played. He, he is the theme of every romance story. Every dream you have, every hope you have, in one way or another, points to Jesus Christ. God became a man. And that's a story of life. It's a story of love. It's a story of passion. We were meant for this. You see, here's the thing. God, we have these longings to have a love like the Titanic, an adventure, to fly, to be free. Because God wants to love us like that. He wants to embrace us like that. He wants us to say, I trust you as we fly, praise God. He wa he, we, we, we long for intimacy because we're made for intimacy. And He wants to be ultimately. Thank God for the other ways we can meet that need. But the ultimate one who will meet that need is the person of Jesus Christ. He wants you to be the theme of his love story. He wants you to be the one that he rescues. He wants you to be the hero in his warfare. He wants you to enter into his adventure, praise God. He wants you to be the, the note that he plays in his symphony. He wants you to be the one that he says, I love you, I forgive you, I redeem you, I restore you. I destine you for paradise with me forever and ever and ever, praise God. In the end, life is either... It, 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 the, the contrast couldn't be more extreme. Life is either the most abysmal, depressing story ever told. It's a sick joke because everything that makes us distinctly human goes unsatisfied. We're, we're a joke in the universe. Cockroaches have it better than us because they fit in. We don't. It's an absurd, sad tale. It is, as Macbeth says, life is a story told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying absolutely nothing. Okay, that's one option. Or... Life is the most beautiful story ever told. It can be that for you. Because every dream you've ever had, every longing, every hope is in fact fulfilled. Maybe not perfectly now, but it will be. And that's why you have that in your life. You see, the thing is this. What fuels us to get serious about our walk with God? What fuels us to stop playing religion? What fuels us to want to walk with God, to be a warrior for God, to sacrifice and do great things together for the kingdom of God, what fuels that is passion. And to have that passion, you've got to have the vision that inspires the passion. Don't forget paradise. Remember from whence you came, for whom you exist, and where you're going to go. Don't settle for this mundane reality. Don't give up on the dream. It sometimes is hard. It's sometimes just the sheer mundaneness of life, let alone the wounds and the arrows of life. And we'll talk more about that next week. But it can kill the passion of the heart. Don't let it happen. Keep the vision of, of what the goal is alive. And that's what inspires us to do great things for God. The goal of the Christian life is simply this, to become the most godlike person you can become. To become the most alive person you can, you can become. To become the most unique individual you can become. To become a person who's just full of life, full of passion, who experiences and then, then gives the love of God in their life. That's the goal. And all the talk about sanctification and discipleship and all that is simply a means to that end. 
One of the ways that I find that I remember most clearly, see most vividly, and experience most profoundly the goal of the whole thing is through music. Even more than movies, it's for me music. Uh, I find there sometimes in certain pieces, my soul just soars. And uh, it leaves the earth, as it were. And, and I enter into, I, I, I now remember, the, what, what is beauty? I now know what is life. I know what we're meant for. I'm going to close with this. There was a couple of years ago, um, a young man, Matt Stevenson, who was killed in a car crash on Christmas Day. He was a, a close friend of my boy, and the family was a close friend of ours, and, and so we grieved very deeply. And it was one of the saddest things I've ever been through in my life. It was very, very tough. Life here is like that. It wasn't meant to be like that, but it is. Sometime after this, I had this experience. And I told the Stevensons about it, just shared it with them. But it was at 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and that, that's when I tend to do my, my best stuff with the Lord. I have my best you know, romance experiences with the Lord, 3 in the morning. And um, I was listening to some music. And a song came on that I'm actually going to play here. It's a symphonic piece. Last week we did Born to be Wild. This time we're going to do a symphony, all right? Uh, it's just a little brief song, but the Lord used it in a profound way. The first part of the song is kind of sad. There's a longing there. It, re it reflects the sadness of our heart, the sadness of being away from ones we've loved, the sadness of every wound we've experienced, the sadness of the frustration of being away from home. It expresses a longing to me. And I, I saw as the song was being played uh, this graveyard with all these graves, and I saw a tombstone that had Matt's name on it, and I started to cry. And, and there were these fall leaves. There's a certain beautiful bitter sweetness to it but it was sad and then halfway through the song this the, the, the piece changes and this majestic organ comes in and then i saw a very different scene it was like the fulfillment of the longing of the first scene and in this scene i can only describe this it was really quite beyond words but but here's the words i put to it i was i was looking at this field that had all this moonlight on it as it were uh, moonlight to me is the most beautiful scene on the planet. I love when there's a full moon. Uh, gosh, I love it. It's just radiant. Everything has this, this holy sort of uh, feel to it. And uh, so I was looking at this field, and from my right there was this radiating, pulsating, like emerald reflection. And it was beautiful. It was just, it, 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 was, it had hues and colors that were just gorgeous. It was breathtaking. Now, I, I wasn't able in, in my mind's eye, in the spirit, I think this was a God-given vision, but I wasn't able to like look directly at it. I, I wasn't permitted because I'm still here. But I could just see how beautiful it was by the, the radiance of it. And then all of a sudden I saw Matt Stevenson run up into this field by this fence that was on my left side. And there's a gate that was opening up. And I realized that I had here, the Lord had kind of fast forwarded the movie, and I was getting a little preview of what the first day of eternity will be like when the kingdom comes. And Matt ran, ran up to this gate. And then I saw Harry and Vicky, his parents, come up to the gate. And they met there. It was so beautiful. They, they met there, having been separated for this time. Now, they were happy to see each other, but only for a second. Because then Matt just said, Mom and Dad, look. And they looked up and they saw what I wasn't only able to see the reflection of. I see through a glass darkly. They were seeing face to face. And you could see on their expressions that, that, that the glimpse of this breathtaking beauty. It took their breath away. It was like, oh my God. Gosh, I never, in fact, uh, in this picture, uh, Harry said this, I never in my wildest dreams thought it could be like this. It's so beautiful beyond words. They're looking at the, they're looking at the heart of God. 
pure light, pure life, pure radiance, pure beauty. That to which every, every other shadow we have in this world points. This is the real McCoy here. And I there in that experience understood that how it can possibly be. I can't reason this out, but I here could experience in a little way the reality that one split second in eternity will make it all worthwhile. The beauty of what we will be in. The Bible says we don't yet see what we shall be, but we know that we will be like Him for when, he, when, when, when we shall see Him as He is, for we shall be like Him in 1 John 3. One moment of that in that radiant beauty, this is what we're made for. This is the air we were meant to breathe. This is the beauty we were meant to live in. This is the love we were meant to experience. So I want to just play this here. And I don't know how the Lord wants to use it in your life. For some, uh, it may be healing. For some, maybe music isn't your gig. Try to get into it. That's okay. Uh, for others, it maybe will just be a rekindling of the flame. This is what we were made for. This is, the, this is the beauty that we are meant to behold. And let the Lord use it to maybe cause you to remember paradise and anticipate paradise with passion.
Some of you went to a different place uh, for that moment, didn't you? And you can't live there yet, but it's important to taste it. It's important to smell it. There is a reality that one glimpse of this answers all questions. It heals all wounds, fulfills all longings. Either that's true or we're part of the most sickest joke uh, imaginable. But it is true. And his name is Jesus Christ. Praise God. Praise God. Keep the vision alive. Remember paradise. Remember where you're going. And spend some time being there. Seen through a glass darkly, but that's what gives passion to the whole thing. It lifts you up above what we normally do in this mundane world. and causes you to be more than that. It causes you to begin to live in the life that Christ gave us to live. Would the prayer team come forward? And if you're here this morning, and in fact, I want to do this. Let's just take one more minute. As the prayer team comes forward, could you, would you close your eyes? And, and if you're here as a believer, would you pray? And I just want to give an invitation. Is there anybody here who's lonely for home? And you've never really made heaven your home. You have never invited Christ into your life. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And maybe right now you're sensing the need to do that. Would you just raise your hand very quickly? I'm not going to call you forward, but I'm going to pray for you from up here. In the back, several people, praise the Lord. You need, do you want to start this romance relationship with this beautiful Savior? Over there, maybe right now for the first time you realize what your heart's always been longing for. It's for the Lord. Anybody else want to join this adventure? Up here, wonderful over here, several people. We had 16 people up here. Amen. At, at the movie, The Climb, there were 16 people over here. Brother who accepted the Lord. We're just, this is the greatest thing in the world. Anybody else? Very quickly, just raise your hand. Back here. What little boy. Amen. Or little girl. Thank you. Wonderful. Over here, brother. The Lord loves you so much. He died for this to happen. It's just a way of saying, I do. Over here. Wonderful. Okay, whether I saw your hand or not, and maybe you didn't raise your hand, but this is in your heart. You, you know that this is what you're made for. Repeat these words after me. We'll all repeat them with you as a source of support. But praying from your heart like a wedding vow. It's very simple. It goes like this. Heavenly Father, you are beautiful. You are Lord. You are God. You are King. And you love me. I confess that I don't deserve it and that I'm a sinner but I know I need you and so I ask you Lord Jesus come into my life give me that life that you created me for I surrender everything over to you I trust you Amen